Welcome to the Lawrence Steinberg Wealth Management Audiocast, where we cover market updates and provide commentary during this difficult time, specifically for you, the client. We speak to our firm's philosophy, our criteria, our strategies, and how we're approaching today's market environment. And by the end of the discussion, we hope you have a stronger sense of clarity and confidence surrounding how we're positioned and are leading through these unprecedented times. Welcome back. I'm Liam Card, Senior Vice President here at Steinberg Wealth. And today we're going to discuss the Global Value Equity Fund. What's happened over the past 10 weeks, changes we've made in the portfolio, and where we're finding pockets of value in today's markets. Now, a lot has happened over this period and we're excited to provide you with the updates. So let's get going. I'm joined by our president, Lauren Steinberg, and our senior vice president, equities, Martin Cobb. Lauren, perhaps you could start us off with an update in the equity markets since our last audio cast on this topic. Sure, Liam. Thank you very much. You know, it was only three months ago that investors were panicking and selling equities. Now it feels like such a long time ago as so much has transpired since then. This recent unprecedented rally has been driven by three things. Massive fiscal stimulus, unlimited liquidity from the central banks, and the increasing belief that a COVID-19 vaccine will be a reality by 2021. The economic impact of the recession has been buffered so much by government support for those who have been most impacted, as budget deficits are the highest since World War II. So with all of this fiscal stimulus, it doesn't yet feel like the worst recession since the Depression. Also, the Fed and other central banks have been supporting investors and corporations by printing record amounts of money, buying government bonds, and for the first time in history, also buying corporate and high-yield bonds. All of that is driving yields down even lower than they already were. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, the government of Austria recently issued a 100-year bond at a yield of less than 1%. Therefore, in the current environment, Liam, investors seeking yield have little choice but to buy dividend-paying stocks and high-yield bonds and hope that the economy stabilizes. So that's why the stock market appears to be decoupled from the economy at the present time. And this one is going to be an important one to discuss because we've been more active in 2020 than in any year since the firm was founded. So Martin, what's changed in our portfolio over the first half of this year? Thanks, Liam. You're absolutely right. We've seen a period of fairly elevated turnover in the first six months of 2020. What I would like to say first and foremost, though, all the activity has been driven by opportunity, both on the buying and in the selling. If you allow me to use analogy from my homeland football, it really has been a game of two halves. You would call that soccer. In the first quarter, really in February and March, you could say we went on the offense. We were able to buy some world-class businesses on sale. In my mind, we were buying Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi at very cheap transfer fees. The second half of the quarter, May and into June in particular, as markets pushed on, we found more opportunities to sell stocks that had met our price targets. We sold several of our more cyclical names, including all of our energy stocks, a couple of South Korean banks, and several of our Japanese holdings that had met or exceeded our share price targets. The result of all that elevated activity is we have a very and much more broadly diversified portfolio We've increased the quality of the portfolio. We've increased the growth prospects of the stocks that we own in aggregate with very little change 
in the overall valuation of the portfolio. And with names like Disney and Google and Alibaba added to the portfolio, a few clients have asked if our value investing criteria has changed. And perhaps you could speak to that or how we've adapted in this environment. Well, Liam, our criteria has actually never changed. We're always been looking to find great businesses that are financially strong and generate free cash flow, but whose share prices are trading at a large enough discount to their intrinsic value. As Martin mentioned, given the recent volatility, we finally had the chance to buy some of the world's greatest businesses on sale. Alphabet, which is Google, is a world-beating company with outstanding growth prospects over the next many years. So it's clearly worth substantially more in terms of price-earnings ratio than a lower growth business such as a consumer products company. However, at the valuation that we paid, Alphabet is a compelling value stock just as is a consumer stock that we own, Unilever, which trades at a significantly lower PE. Both value stocks, but with different growth prospects. Martin, I had a conversation the other day relating to value investing, and the individual I was speaking to thought that the only pockets of value these days were in truly beaten down sectors and in small cap stocks. What are your thoughts there? Certainly some truth in that, but not universal. Take the US market, the Russell 3000 index, which is 3000 companies across the market cap spectrum within the United States. If you were to break the market caps of those companies within that index by decile and put that along the x-axis and then put valuation, whatever valuation metric you choose on the y-axis and draw a line, it would pretty much go from the bottom left to the top right. The larger the companies, yes, pretty much the more expensive the stocks are. Then you have to think about small caps versus large caps. Small caps are typically more domestic. They're typically more physical in their operations, less virtual. They're much more economically sensitive, and they carry an awful lot more debt than some of the larger cap companies, particularly the mega caps, which are cash-rich businesses. And there's an existential threat in some of the cases with these small cap businesses owing to COVID-19. So the, the point is valid. It does throw up some opportunities, but it's by no means universal, certainly. And within sectors, again, you see a great dichotomy between certain sectors, which are trading at all-time highs in terms of price and valuation. And yes, there are some sectors that are beaten down, certainly way off their all-time highs. But in a number of cases, those sectors are beaten down for a reason. We are always looking for opportunities. And I would say there are some great opportunities in some of the small and mid-cap stocks, but also in some of the geographic areas that have been a little bit left behind. Europe and Asia would be the example where we have a number of positions and ones we've been adding to recently. With respect to the opportunities and value that we're finding in Japan, just to expand on that a little bit, what are we still seeing in our Japanese names and why are they so compelling? Japan's a great example of where there are overlooked stocks. Uh, We have about 15% of our portfolio in Japanese companies, some of which are world-beating companies, but are just not household names. Let me give you a couple of examples of those. We own Espec. Espec invented the environmental test chamber. Now, what is an environmental test chamber? It is a chamber that every single consumer electronics, before it goes to market, has to go through to be tested for vibrations, for heat and humidity. Espec invented this business and is a world leader in it today. Good underlying growth, more than half their business outside Japan, solidly profitable, net cash greater than one third of its market cap, trading on a low teens multiple, doubled its dividend in the last three years. An example of the type of company we own. Another great world-leading company in its own business would be Rikin Keiki. Rikin Keiki makes gas detection equipment, but two-thirds of its business in Japan, one-third outside. 
gas detection equipment is used anywhere where humans might be exposed to toxic or combustible gases, like the home, like buildings, schools, hospitals, coal mines, etc. Quality of that product is absolutely paramount. The barriers to entry are huge. This is a company that's been consistently profitable and cash flow positive, not just for years, but for decades. Net cash, again, almost a quarter of its market cap, low teens multiple, driving the business and returning money to shareholders through dividends. Examples of the types of world-leading companies that are small and niche that we own within Japan. At the other end of the spectrum, we own Nippon Antenna. Now, as the name might suggest, they make transmission and receiving equipment. Pretty much all their sales are within Japan. Now, the antenna market is a bit more cyclical, doesn't typically enjoy secular growth, but they manage it pretty well. But why do we like it? There are really two roles of management. One is operating the business and one is capital allocation. And it's really for the latter reason that we like a NIP antenna and it's a core holding for the fund. Management, who own about 30% of the shares, have been buying back those shares aggressively over the last three or four years. The net cash here is greater than the market cap. They're buying back shares at half of book value, half of cash value. So they're basically buying for 50 cents, one yen of shares. For 50 cents, one dollar of shares. That is very, very powerful for the remaining shareholders like us who own the stock. Now, Lauren, a big story this year has, of course, been the stay-at-home stocks and, and certainly their contribution to the overall recovery as well in the markets. We have some in our portfolio, and maybe you could highlight a few here for us. Sure, Liam. For sure, with people staying at home, uh, one theme has been people doing more work around their house. And we own Tektronic, which is the world's largest consumer tool company, whose brands include Milwaukee and Homelite, as well as Hoover vacuum cleaners. And it's been one of our best performers during this period of time. Also, some of the technology companies have boomed. Microsoft, for example, has been a huge beneficiary of the work-from-home trend that we're currently experiencing. And we recently purchased our first shares of Berkshire Hathaway, a stock that has lagged the market for the last few years. People may not realize that actually 20% of the market value of Berkshire Hathaway is their holding in Apple shares, which is worth about $95 billion. As well, we have Alibaba, the Chinese Amazon. So a good chunk of our portfolio has been allocated to companies which are benefiting from the current situation. Martin, this was a great question that came up as a result of our recent webinar at the Virtual Money Show a couple of weeks ago, and I thought our clients might benefit from the answer here as well. The question was, how does a value manager evaluate investment opportunities when there is no real forward guidance? What are your thoughts there? It's a very understandable question, and the glib answer is that I pay no attention to it whatsoever. Uh, And let me explain why, but give an example of the world in which we live in today. If you're an SEC-registered company, you have to report every quarter. So every 13 weeks, you're telling the market how your operations have been doing. Now, typically, you would give a trading update prior to the quarter end. Towards the end of the third month, you would give an update, a preview of the quarterly results to the market. Now, these very well-paid sell-side analysts who work on Wall Street or the City of London would typically give a preview of the company's preview to the quarterly numbers. I used to work for a large investment management house. We were a platinum client. And as a result of that, we got a sneak preview of the sell-side analyst preview. So you get a preview of a preview of a preview of the quarterly numbers. The world has gone mad. So we pay no attention whatsoever to forward guidance. 
Why not? Because company management simply have no better idea how, what the future holds than anybody else, despite the fact that we like to listen to them. We spend all our time thinking about the long term, the earnings power, the cash generation of a business over the very long term. Every single stock in our portfolio, we look back 5, 10, 15, 20 years. We project forward the business over the next several years. We want to understand what the cash flow that business is likely to generate over the next several years and what we're paying for it. Over the next three months, six months, one year, the outlook, we pay no attention to it whatsoever. There's no value added. It's just noise. Martin, thank you. Lauren, any final thoughts as we start to wrap this up? You know, Liam, as we look back over the last two and a half years to the day, over that period, shares of Berkshire Hathaway are down about 10%. Also over the same period of time, shares of TD Bank, even after including dividends, are down about the same. That tells you it's been a pretty difficult market for investors over the last two and a half years. So when we see that the share prices of companies such as Tesla and Netflix are going up every day, regardless of valuation, it is somewhat reminiscent to me of the late 90s, when people bought story stocks and no one paid any attention to value. Now, let me say Tesla has done an incredible job in building electric cars, but revenue growth is poised to slow as the rest of the industry comes out with their own electric vehicles. And Tesla generates minimal free cash flow, but at the current price trades at 150 times next year's projected earnings. So there is no justification whatsoever for the current share price, but this is truly symbolic of some of the market excesses. And it's those few companies, many of them trading at valuations, which make no sense, that have been the winners in the current environment. If you ask me, do I think investors will do better over the next several years owning companies such as Berkshire Hathaway and Microsoft versus Tesla? The answer is a resounding yes. And Martin, any final thoughts? I often get asked what I do. And my response, which is only partly joking, is that I read for a living. The great thing about being an investor is there are so many other investors, good and bad, who committed their thoughts, their processes, their philosophies, etc., to paper. There's one thing that I see amongst the investors that I respect is that they don't try to predict the future. Indeed, they know the future is inherently unknowable. There is no ability to do that, so why bother? What do they do instead? First of all, they know what they buy. They stay within a circle of competence and they understand the businesses in which they're looking to invest. Secondly, they buy them at a discount of what they believe them to be worth. And thirdly, they recognize it takes time, sometimes several years, for the market to recognize that intrinsic value itself. That is investing in a nutshell. Lauren, Martin, thank you for your insights and commentary today. And I invite anyone with questions surrounding today's discussion to please call or email us anytime. All of our contact information is on our website at www.steinbergwealth.com. And we would be pleased to continue the conversation on anything we touched on today or anything we missed. Please join us next time when my colleagues Penny Styropoulos and Daniel Thompson will discuss investors nearing or in the retirement stage of life. And they will cover several frequently asked questions surrounding how to prepare for retirement, how to maintain a standard of living, and several key considerations for this stage in an investor's life. 